0: Well, today we are starting a uh, sermon series going through the book of Malachi, and uh, this is hopefully it will be about a six-week series, take us up to the beginning of Advent season, and then we'll go through uh, Advent uh, as well. So, if you're if you're not sure where the book of Malachi is in your Bible, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's the it's between the the book of Malachi and the gospel of Matthew is a time period of about 400 years. And during that uh, time period in those 400 years, a lot of things happened. And uh, so it's not as though that 400 years is a time of, of silence. It's in that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew that Alexander the Great takes place, uh, that he ends up rolling through a lot of uh, the what we consider the, the Middle East heading towards uh, India. And during that time, he dies quite young. There's a, uh, his kingdom is split up among four generals. Uh, there's a guy named Seleucid who ends up being the, the, uh, the ruler over the area that is, was Israel. Uh, his name is Seleucid. And then uh, that comes this time period where the Maccabees revolt against the, the uh, Greeks that wanted to make them worship their gods. And we talked about the Maccabean revolt sometimes during, when we're going through Matthew and then the Romans roll in, and then when we pick up in the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus, you have the Romans in place in Palestine, and that's where that's, where that's at. But the time of Malachi is an interesting time because it's a, it's a time where the people of Israel, well, and they're called the people of Israel even though they're really the, uh, the remnants of Judah. And by the way, that's where the term Jewish comes from, or Jew it comes from being part of the people of Judah. And uh, they had returned from exile. But things weren't going very well. In fact, one of the things that I've often said is as adults, we will often treat God the same way that children uh, treat their parents, especially when children are angry uh, with their parents. Uh, If you listen to a child and and the complaints they have about their parents, you don't love me, you're not fair, you never let me do what I want, all these things, it's pretty much... Similar to how, as adults, we approach God when we're angry. And you may shake your head and say, oh, we don't do that. Trust me, as a pastor for 30 years, we do that. And, uh, and we hear those same sorts of things. God doesn't love me. Uh, he's not being fair. He doesn't let me do what I want to do. You know, there's those same sorts of feelings are often there. And Malachi, uh, the book of Malachi was written, as I've already said, during the post-exile time. So if you kind of know your... Your history from the Old Testament, which you may or may not be that familiar with. Uh, Israel and Judah as a kingdom had split fairly early on. It's, only, it's, the grand, it's the son of Solomon, so it's only the fourth king of Israel that it splits into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom gets conquered by Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And about 150 years later, the Judean Empire or country of Judah gets conquered by the Babylonians. They get taken into exile. If you read the book of Jeremiah, that's all that's taking place. Uh, the whole book is taking place during this exile time. Uh, the book of Ezekiel is actually written in exile. Ezekiel is in exile when he writes the book of Ezekiel. So this is a big time. And then uh, under... Uh, the Persians, they were, the Jews, were allowed to go back and sort of reestablish uh, Jerusalem. And if you read the books of Haggai and, and Zechariah, those are the two prophets that, that encouraged the uh, rebuilding of the temple. And, just, and, if, and I'm just giving you this background so you kind of know where the people are at in Malachi. They rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't... Well, we don't really know why they, they wept, but we think the reason why it says they rebuilt the temple and they wept because it... It didn't match the splendor of Solomon's temple. It, even though they rebuilt it, it was kind of, uh, uh, it's good. And then the people didn't really do much after that. They didn't, They kind of lost motivation. Because going back from exile, which only a minority chose to go back. Sometimes when we read in the histories, it looks like the majority of the people chose to return from Babylon back to uh, Jerusalem, but it was a minority. In fact, to this day, the longest continually uh, inhabited Jewish community is in modern day Iraq, and they are direct descendants from these folks that were taken uh, into exile by the Babylonian Empire. So only a minority came back, and it wasn't all great. The, the, the city was destroyed. They had neighbors that had, or people around them who had claimed land that didn't want to give it back up. Uh, which is, you know, that even happens today. Uh, Some of us, we have folks, you know, I I don't know that much about, I'm always super careful when I want to bring up like stuff that happens in Germany because I don't want to presume things. But one of the things I have heard is that, you know, people lost land from the east when they came to the west, and there's still some court battles going on as to whose land that should be uh, after the wall came down, and these court battles are still going on because people took the land, and then you have folks saying, well, that was our land. And so that was kind of going on in Jerusalem. The people came back and folks were saying, we don't, we're we not going to give you back the land. This is our land now. We've been living on it for 70 years. So there was back and forth going on, uh, things that weren't that great. And the people kind of lost a lot of their zeal. And in fact, this is a time when the people are really struggling with who they are because the kingdom of Israel was never established. Even though they were allowed to go back and have a, a Jewish city and a Jewish homeland, and Nehemiah eventually comes and they rebuild the walls. And it's kind of an inspiring time during Nehemiah's time. But after Nehemiah, which is when, Zechariah, which is when Malachi takes place, shortly after Nehemiah's time where they rebuilt the walls of, of the city, the people were just, there's a lack of motivation. They, they hadn't seen the rebirth of the kingdom of Israel the way they were hoping for. And their attitude toward God was reflecting this, that they really kind of had a lot of deep apathy towards God. And so Malachi as a prophet comes in, and this is, this is the, uh, the place where he is entering into, a, a people that are a little bit disappointed with the way that their lives are going. They're disappointed that they don't have this grand and glorious rebuilt kingdom of Israel. They're disappointed the temple doesn't look as great as it did in the time of Solomon. They're disappointed that uh, they're still surrounded by people that are hostile toward them. They're disappointed that they have gone through the same sorts of things that life puts people through. They've gone through times of bad harvest. They've gone through times of of plague. And then so Malachi comes in and he's basically talking to them about their attitude. Because their attitude toward God was like a petulant, angry, surly teenager. Who doesn't want to do what God is telling them because their attitude toward God is, why should I? Why should we do what you've told us to do? What have you done for us? And so Malachi begins. And Malachi is is sometimes called by some commentators as good news with a divine edge. It's good news, but Malachi is coming at them and he doesn't come at them softly. He comes at them pretty straightforward and sometimes a little bit harsh. So let's get into this. We're going to look at the first five verses today. It says this, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom might say... Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now one of the reasons why we're uh, looking at Malachi, one that kind of fits within this time period is we're between the end of Matthew and going into Advent, and I also like to go New Testament, Old Testament. But another reason why I chose Malachi is most of what he talks about is stuff that is very relatable to where we are today as as Christians. He doesn't really talk a lot about prophecies against countries which no longer exist on the map today. He talks about the attitude of the heart of the people toward God. And I find it interesting that the way Malachi begins, it says an oracle a word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And the reason why I find this interesting is because the word oracle in the Hebrew is the same as the word for burden. In fact, some of the old uh, English versions will say, a burden, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And a burden is something you carry. And I find it interesting that that the word oracle, which is kind of a a revelation or a teaching, and burden are the same word uh, in this passage. And what, is the first, what are the first words of this oracle or the first words of this burden that God shares with the people? Well, the first words are, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, why would those be the first words of an oracle or the first words of a burden placed upon folks? I've loved you. It doesn't seem to be a burdensome thing to hear God say that I love you. In fact, this has been the message throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, expressed most clearly upon the cross of Christ. God loves us. God loves us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why would these be words of burden? Well, I think they're words of burden because if you really understand or you take to heart the phrase coming from God, I love you, then you have to somehow respond to that. The burden is laid on you, and either you carry that burden, or you throw it off your shoulders, or you put it somewhere else, but you have to somehow deal with it. Now, now, I love you can be a burden, which is a joy to carry. For example, when my wife Cindy tells me, I love you, I understand that in, in that in those words she's actually kind of carrying my burden a little bit. She's telling me, you know, she's there for me. She wants to walk with me through life. I can trust where she's coming from when she says I love you. I know she's not I love you, but here's how I'm going to manipulate you. It's, you know, I love you. It's it's very straightforward, it's very trusting and that burden is a light burden to carry. And Jesus talks about having light burdens to carry. He says, come unto me, and I'll help you carry your burden. For my way is easy, my burden is light. But a few years ago, my father-in-law started having dementia. And one of the ways that, that this manifested itself, the last time we were visiting, which was last, this last summer, is that when we would, I would come into the room, and he would be in the room watching TV or something, I'd sit down, and he'd say, I love you. I have a good relationship with my father-in-law. I've known him for, you know, 35 years. My my in-laws, you couldn't ask for better in-laws. But the words, I love you, have never passed between my father-in-law and me. Not that we don't care about one another, but it's just not the sort of thing that he's felt comfortable to say to me. And it's not the sort of thing I've felt comfortable to say to him. Sometimes people think Americans like to walk around and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Not where I'm from in America. You know, the South, they're kind of more open to this whole, I love you. Where I'm from in the Northwest, we're like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. We'll say I love you, but we don't just kind of throw that around. And when my father-in-law told me he loves me, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to respond. Because when I respond to someone saying that they love me, I respond because I truly have a response to give. When Cindy says she loves me, it's okay for me to go, well, I love you too. Totally easy. We understand all the context of it. It's great. But when my father-in-law told me he he loved me, I'm like, oh my goodness, how do I respond to this? Because I know part of it is it's the dementia talking. I know all of it is the dementia talking. He never said this before the dementia. And I know that while there's an affection there, I don't think he really quite understands what he's saying when he looks at me and says, I love you. And I found it very uncomfortable. I found it a burden. Because what do you say? You can't just leave it out there. You can't just say someone says that they love you, and you kind of go, Yeah, what channel are we going to watch on TV here? And just pretend it never happened. At least I couldn't. So what do you do with that? It was a burden. And when I responded, I did respond. I I just kind of went, well, love you too. (laughs) But I felt right here kind of this pain of, this is uncomfortable. Because they're just not words I would normally use. With him, even though I care about him very, very much. This, there's a burden to being told we are loved. And there's a burden when we start to understand that God loves us. I think a lot of people, when they hear about God's love, it's, it's very, it's almost just kind of like a fairy tale. Something very other than them. Well, God loves us. Okay, great. God, Christ died on the cross for us. Well, I know a lot of people have heard that story. They're not moved by it. You know, they're told Jesus died for your sins upon the cross. And the vast majority of people seem to kind of go, Meh. but when the Holy Spirit begins to really work with you and you begin to understand what it means that God loves you, that he knows you, he created you for a purpose, you're created in his image, male and female, he created them. You're created... And not just dropped into this crazy world that is very much affected by sin. But that he stays in contact. He took your sin upon himself. He was willing to take that horrible punishment. So that you could have an eternal life of hope and joy. And when you begin to understand God's love for you. It becomes a bit of a burden. It's something that you have to respond to. When you you look at the cross and you finally understand that that. Christ the dying on the cross is dying for you then it's, it's impossible to just go eh you have to respond to it either you respond to it by accepting what he did for you or people get freaked out by it and they push it away I don't want to be responsible for this I don't want to be responsible for what Christ did on the cross I didn't ask him to die for me so why should I be responsible? And I've heard these responses over the years. I've heard the joyous response. Wow, Jesus did this for me. And I've heard people say, I didn't ask for that. So I'm not responsible for that. And they're kind of freaked out. Because they feel the burden of response. Well, the people in Malachi's time, the first thing that God tells them, these people that are discouraged, these people that feel like God has kind of abandoned them, that they're not living the dream like they wanted to live. The first words are, I love you. So then the question becomes to us, how do we respond to that? How do you respond to it? Well, the people of Israel responded to it by saying, how? How have you loved us? You say you've loved us? Great. How? Their response is, is a little bit sassy. You yeah? know? God says, I love you, and instead of saying, wow, that means so much to us, their response is, mm mm-hmm. how? In other words, their, act, their attitude toward God is, well, you say you love me, and what have you done for me lately? I mean, we're back in Jerusalem, whoop de doo the city's a mess, we don't have a kingdom, we're surrounded by enemies... We're still under the Persians, and even though the Persians are pretty benevolent rulers, we're still under the Persians. What have you done for us? How have you shown that you love us, God? If you want us to respond and be all happy, happy, then give me a reason to be all happy, happy. And of course, as Christians, we would never do anything like this. We would never respond to God somewhere in our Christian walk with, well, what have you done for me lately? Would we? Because you're a holy bunch, right? Some of you are nodding and say, That's right, I would never do that. Well, trust me. Believers do this all the time. What have you done for me? I mean, sure, you died for my sins, you rose from the grave, you gave me the opportunity to have new life in you, but what have you done for me lately? And one of the ways I think that, the, that Christianity sometimes does a huge disservice is that we often try to sell Jesus as, well, if you, follow, if you become a follower of Jesus, you'll have no more problems in your life. This is the lie of the health and wealth gospel, that you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy. Here's the truth. When you're a Christian, you're still living in a world that is fallen. You're still living in a world that's affected by sin. As a Christian, you have a more active enemy in Satan than you probably had active against you as a non-Christian. Because when you become a Christian, you kind of pop your head up and say, praise the Lord, and Satan wants to knock that head right off. And I can't tell you over the years how many times people have become believers and it seems like the wheels just come off their life. And they get discouraged very quick because Satan wants to make sure you stay down. I went to a concert last week. It was a Bob Dylan concert uh, in Krefeld. And uh, kudos to Bob Dylan in that he's 80 years old, and he's up there banging away on the piano and kind of singing. And uh, if you ever heard Bob Dylan, even in his best days, he was always kind of singing. But uh, he does this one song, and it's a song I I liked uh, from him. It's called, You Gotta Have to Serve Somebody. And uh, he says in this song, you know, You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And he's right in that. Sometimes people in the world think that they're a free agent. Well, I'm not going to serve God. I'm going to be my own man. Well, if you're your own own man or own woman and you're not serving God, then Satan has you where he wants you because you're still going to hell. It doesn't matter if you're a horrible person or just a slightly selfish person that doesn't want anything to do with God. That all still has separated you from God. You're serving somebody all the time. You're either serving the Lord, or you're serving the purposes of Satan. There really is no in-between. And people who want to say, well, I don't believe in either. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in God, or you don't believe in Satan. They're there, whether you believe in it or not. And you're serving somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're serving somebody. And as Christians... Sometimes we forget we have an active enemy. Sometimes we forget we live in a world of sin. Sometimes we forget that life is going to bring things into our, do things to us, which are unpleasant. But what we have is an eternal hope in Christ. And this eternal hope gives us a perspective, or it should give us a perspective, on how to deal with these things in this temporary situation. And this temporary situation, it can be wonderful or it can be horrible, but it's temporary. And as a people in Christ, we have our eyes on the eternal. And this is the place where the, the nation of Israel was. They were, they were caught up in the temporary, they're, they're caught up in what's not happening right in front of them. Instead of seeing the amazing fact that they still exist as a people, was a miracle because 99% of every other nation that is conquered. Their temples destroyed, their city walls torn down, their best and brightest of their society pulled out and forced into exile. They never come back. They never come back. How many of you are a Hittite? Hittite? No one? It used to be a massive empire that took up over half of what is modern day Turkey. There's no Hittites here? You got temples that are still out there? No one? It's because they were destroyed and they never came back. How many of you are an Amorite? No one? Amalekite? Jebusite? Edomite? Huh. wonder where they all went. They were destroyed and never came back. The fact that the people of Israel still could call themselves at least a tribe, even if they didn't have a kingdom, and they had Jerusalem, was a miracle. But it wasn't enough. They wanted more. And it's okay to want more. But it's not okay to overlook what God has already done. And that's where they were at. And a lot of times, that's where we're at at Christians. We overlook what God has already done in our lives. Because it's not the dream that we were hoping for. It's not the perfect relationship. Or sometimes, frankly, our relationships are awful. Our kids, they're not like all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and super happy to see us all the time. Sometimes they even get sassy with us. Lord, why have you abandoned me? To give me sassy kids, which I didn't have. No, neither of them are here, right? Okay, good. Lord, I'm not, I'm not doing the dream job that I have. I don't feel like I'm living my best self. Why have you abandoned me? As Christians, we often get so focused on what we don't have in the temporary, and we overlook what we have already been given in the eternal. And so when, God, when the people of Israel ask this question, what have you done for me lately? God's response is... Well, you can see it in in the response that Paul gives us. Paul, who went through so much difficulty. You look at the life of the apostles. They were not a fragile bunch. They were a tough bunch. And Paul was one of the tougher ones. He went through being shipwrecked. He went through being homeless. He went through being hungry. He went through being betrayed. He went through churches that he planted, then turning their backs on him and hating him. Paul had a lot of reason to say, God, what is the deal? What have you done for me lately? But his response was this Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall love or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? He lists those things because he experienced those things. So, that as is written, for you, your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. And then he kind of gets through this and says, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the apostle Paul, if he were to continue that, with this, he'd say, and that's what matters. Everything else is temporary the suffering is temporary being shipwrecked is temporary for him being in prison was temporary for him even if the temporary was the end of this life it was temporary his eyes were on the eternal and so when the nation kind of coming back now around when the nation of Israel was going through this time of kind of what have you done for us lately the way god answers is he answers through their history And he says this, was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, we need to clear this up a little bit because people always have questions about this. And Paul actually uses the same passage when he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He didn't hate the person of Esau. If you read the book of Genesis, Esau was blessed. And Esau is actually a pretty stand-up guy. People are hard on Esau. But when Jacob came back, Esau welcomed him with open arms. He had no intention of, of, you know, turning on Jacob. In fact, Jacob, again, betrayed Esau. God didn't have a problem with the person of Esau. What he had a problem with was the descendant, the legacy of Esau. Esau's descendants became the nation of Edom. And if you look in Genesis 36, you'll see this is all laid out. Esau is Edom. And so when when you read in the Bible, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. He's not talking about, I love Jacob the person, because he was a difficult dude, really. He's a liar, cheat, little, little scandal monger. And Esau I hated. He's saying, I've loved the legacy which is Israel. But the legacy which is Edom... I don't love this. And why? Well, historically, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that the gripe, the the complaint that the prophets always had against Edom was that Edom would rejoice every time Israel went through difficult times. Edom very rarely fought Israel directly. But they would go, Ha, 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 Israel. Look at them. The chosen people, through Jacob, and we know his story, look at them, fallen, beat up, taken into exile. (laughs) All right. God hated that. If you're a parent, it'd be like how you would feel if the neighborhood bully is beating up your kid And your brother's son, your kid's cousin, is standing there going, (laughs) keep it up. The fact that it's your son's cousin who's turned his back on his own flesh and blood and is laughing and is joyful over watching your kid getting pounded into the ground. How would you feel about that? Well, that's how God felt about Edom. That these were the descendants. They were brothers. These, these are kind of cousin nations. And the one cousin, Edom, rejoices when Israel suffers. That's what he means when he says, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And then he talks about the legacy. I've turned his mountains into a wasteland. I've left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, now he ships over to instead of talking about Esau. Now he talks about them as a nation. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. Basically, they're saying, you know, we've, we're going to down, but we're going to pull ourselves up. And But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. In other words, they think they're going to come back, but they're not going to come back. Again, anyone an Edomite? Anyone know an Edomite? Anyone related to an Edomite? Anyone know any words in Edom? Edomish? I don't even know if that's the right word. They'll be called a wicked land. It's interesting that, that while they were in existence, Edom was known for being a land of wisdom. So being known as the wicked land is kind of the opposite of what they wanted to be known as, a land of wisdom. A people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So God answers this question of what have you done with me, for me lately with the response, well, what have I been doing in your history? What can you look back on and say what I've been doing in your history? I formed you. I restored you. I was with you in exile. I'm with you in your return. What are you complaining about? What is the complaint? What's your problem, folks? And for us as Christians, when we question God's love, he very much says the same things to us. Because when we say to the Lord, either... Through attitude or just write out loud, what have you done for me lately? The answer to God, the answer from God is very similar to the answer that he would give to the nation of Israel. He formed you. He created you. He gave you the opportunity for life. But if you're here today and you're a believer, he also saw to it you were introduced to the saving gospel of Christ so that you, your soul could return from the exile that sin had placed it in. And you've been allowed to the Spirit of God to come home to Him and to be restored. And does it mean your life is perfect? Anyone here living the perfect life? Anyone here have the expectation of eternal life? Well, there you go. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. We don't live the perfect life. And anyone that tells you if you become a Christian, everything's going to go hunky-dory, and you're going to have no problems, and blah, 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 they're lying. And I don't know if they're lying to you on purpose or if they're lying to you out of ignorance, but it's not true. Christians go through stuff. You ever been through stuff as a believer? Yeah. Well, you're not the only one. Because you live in a fallen world, you have an enemy, Life happens. But He gave you the opportunity through His Spirit to come back into relationship with Him so that you could know that what you're dealing with in front of you is temporary and that you can have that sense of the eternal and your eyes can be lifted up from the muck that is the world in front of you and towards the heavens and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. And your rod and your staff, it comforts me. So when we go through this time of wondering, does God really love me? He talks very often to us in the same way through history. I gave you life. I brought you into contact with the gospel truth. I stirred in your heart the fact that I died for you so that when you saw the cross of Christ, you understood that this was for you. It wasn't just a decoration or some historic relic. And I have answered your prayers. Most of which you don't recognize. Just like the ten lepers were healed and only one came back to say thank you. We probably recognize about 10% of the time that God answers our prayers. And he's worked miracles in his lives and we probably recognize even fewer of those. He's given you the opportunity to know greater truths than words can describe. And he's given you the opportunity for your life to mean something deeper and to allow you to experience something which doesn't just fall apart with all the divisions that the world brings into place, especially at a place like IBCD. He's allowed us to be in a place where nationality, mother tongue, culture doesn't get in the way and cause division. He's allowed through Jesus Christ us to be in this amazing situation where we can love one another, people from around the world. And this is incredibly unique. And I know that some of you know that, but I think some of us, it's hard for us to remember what a miracle this is. That we don't fight like cats and dogs and we haven't split up into little groups where we try and just be together and, 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 and let's all look the same, act the same, talk the same, believe the same. Everything has to be the same. Because those sameness really just cause division. The only true unity is found in Christ. And being a part of this is a little bit of a miracle. He's done this for you. But more than that, I said that we have an enemy, and the enemy is Satan. But it, Satan only has power in your life if you're a believer in Christ. He only has the power in your life that you give him anymore. You're not under Satan's, uh, you know, under his thrall like a slave anymore. It's not like you can't... Have any say at all as to what goes on in your life when it comes to sin. Before you are a believer, you couldn't help but sin. It's what you were. It's what your nature was. Mine too. The scripture talks about all this time. Before in Christ, some of us were, you know, and Paul would list all these things. Different things that we were. Liars, cheats, thieves, prostitutes, blah, blah, blah. It goes on. But in Christ, that has been crushed. The only power Satan has in our life now is the power we allow him to have. And unfortunately, as Christians, we allow him to have power. But we don't have to be under that anymore. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're sometimes we're volunteers to sin. I'll volunteer for that. But we're not slaves to it. Because we have a new master. You've got to serve somebody. Some of you have chosen to serve the Lord. I think most of you here have chosen to serve the Lord. But sometimes we need to be reminded He's Lord and Master. Not just Lord and buddy. He's master. And we follow him. And I find it interesting that the way then this ends in Malachi. is he says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A lot of folks, when you read the Old Testament, one of the things that kind of makes people uncomfortable is that a lot of the folks in the Old Testament didn't really understand that there is only one God. They believed in these regional gods. And it was, a, it was a, a step in sort of thinking, especially after you see the exile, when the return from the exile, that the people, the Jewish people began to realize there is only one God. And this is, you see this a lot from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel's book was written while it was in exile. One of the big aha moments for the Jewish people from the prophet Ezekiel is that God is with us even outside of Israel. God is with us even outside the temple. That's why he has this vision of this river that flows from the temple towards the east where they were in exile. It was kind of an aha moment for them. There is one God, and he extends beyond Israel. And we take this for granted now, but this was kind of a growing process when you read the Old Testament. And as they began to understand the greatness of God, they began to realize At least Malachi wants them to begin to realize serving this great God that extends beyond the borders of Israel is a privilege. And it's the only God that is worth your worship. So, what has God done? What has He done for you? What has He done for me? Would it be enough to say, even if God were never to bless you, however you want to define blessing, In any way, after today, at all. Would it be enough for you to say, even if you never gave me another blessing again? Again, however you want to define that. Is it enough that he was willing to empty himself of his glory and to take upon himself the human nature, to walk among us, to teach us, to bring us to an understanding of who God really is, and then take upon himself our sins, exchanging our sin for his righteousness so that we could go from being in this miserable, temporary world as the best we have to hope for so that we can have an eternal hope? And is it enough that he rose from the grave to prove that he is victor over sin and death? And is it enough that he gave you his Holy Spirit so that you can be in relationship with the God of the universe? If He were never to give you another blessing again, if you never got that parking place you've been praying for, if you never... Saw healing take place as you've been praying for. Is it enough that He gave you this eternal life, this eternal hope? Is it? Because we don't act like it. We usually act like, "Well, that's nice." What have you done today? And I think this is why the book of Malachi is a very uh, impactful book, even for us as believers, because he's dealing with human nature and their relationship with God, just like we deal with human nature and our relationship with God. And I'm not pointing your finger, my finger at any of us, any of you in particular, because I do the same thing. I do the same thing. I get all wanny wanny about how my life is going or things in my life that I don't like, and I'm like, meh, meh, meh. But I'm a child of eternity. And so are many of you. What are we complaining about? And I think one of the things I want to talk about as far as just end this with a way to uh, apply this in our lives is, you know, these next couple months, well, people are already freaking out about what the wintertime in Germany is going to be like. Right? You've heard it in the news. You've heard it. They're freaking out. It's going to be cold. We might not have stuff. There might be shortages. I mean, good night. I've never been in a place before where someone sneezes and then all of a sudden all the flour and all the cooking oil is gone for like, you know, three months because people freak out because their safety is being threatened. And you're going to hear a lot. We're going to hear a lot of this as winter comes closer. People are going to feel very threatened. They're going to feel like their comfort is being imposed upon. They're going to feel their finances are being pinched. Cindy and I got this note that you know said, well, this is what you paid for your uh, electricity this year. Well, this is what it's going to be in the next year. And it was three times the amount. Yikes! But you know what? A light doesn't shine brightly unless it's in a dark room. And in these dark times, dark literally as we go into winter... But also in that darkness of fear that people are going to be wallowing in. The darkness of self-pity people are going to be wallowing in. Oh, woe is us. This is the time for us to shine. This is for you to say to your colleagues at work who are moaning and groaning and complaining over lunch. Or to your family or to your neighbors who are moaning and groaning. You say, you know what? It is tough right now. But this is temporary. Where is your eternity going to be? If your eternity isn't going to be with God, then this cold, dark winter is going to be a piece of cake compared to your eternity. This is an opportunity for you to shine. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't be all full of yourself, but just use the opportunity. You think, it's, you think this is something to worry about? I'm not that worried about it because I'm a child of eternity. What does that mean? My hope isn't in the temporary. This may get worse. It may get better. I don't know. But what I do know is where my hope is at, and that's in Jesus Christ. This is an opportunity to be light. So don't join in the complaining. And the reason why I'm telling you this is so often many of you say, how do I reach out to people? How do I talk to people about Jesus? What are the opportunities? I think we got one that's going to be coming up. Especially right around Christmas, too. Add in Christmas to the fear of the, you know, not enough gas and blah, 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 blah. What are you afraid of? For unto us a child is born. Do you believe that? Or do you live in the fear of temporary? May we be people of light, knowing what God has done in our lives. That He has given us a hope that extends beyond what's right in front of our face into that which is beyond what we can even imagine. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. And thank you for Malachi. And just the whole story of, of Israel and the people of Israel and the New Testament, you know, the Bible is just full of these human stories of how they're dealing with you. And like them, sometimes, Lord, we deal with you well, and in a pleasing way, sometimes we admit we we probably are pretty disappointing to you. But Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul he he listed a bunch of things, you know, death or life, angels or demons, present or future. And included in that, Lord, I think is, you know, our feelings from one day to the next getting consumed by the temporary instead of keeping our eyes on the eternal. We're thankful that you are powerful enough, strong enough to overcome all the weaknesses and fears and things that we carry around as people on this side of life, this temporary broken side, people in need of a Savior, people in need of your grace. And help us to take this opportunity to not be fearful as we look into the upcoming months where the news is telling us, oh, it's going to be bad. Instead of being fearful about it, may we use it as an opportunity to shine. To tell people, if you're fearful of this temporary situation, then you've got a lot more to fear when it comes to eternity, unless you put your trust in Christ who himself was born on a cold night, in the dark, without electricity. Not even in a room, but in a manger. Surrounded by cows and sheep instead of nurses and doctors. And yet, in that darkness, he shined. May we shine as well as his ambassadors of hope and peace. May God bless you in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.